Programming Throwdown, episode 84, Customer Bug Handling. Take it away, Jason. Hello. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Episode 84. Um, this is going to be pretty interesting. I'm, I'm actually uh, pretty excited about this. This is something that a lot of people, they don't really teach that well in school, and you could easily kind of get bitten by this. And I've definitely gotten bitten by it, and uh, so we get to kind of talk about it. But before we do that, Let's talk about some really funny computer science pop culture. So how many of you have seen some type of TV show, especially earlier on, like let's say the 90s, early 2000s, and they talk, they try to talk about computers and computer science is just such an epic fail. Um, we've, we've posted a few of them here. My favorite is, and definitely check out the website, programmingthrowdown.com, and uh, you, can, you can check this out. But um, just spoilers here. The first one... Um, you know, they're trying to track some criminal hacker and uh, this woman's like, he's doing it in real time. And then this other lady goes, I'm going to write a GUI in Visual Basic to track his IP address. <laughs> Dead serious. And then she just walks away. And I'm pretty sure yeah, at the end of the movie, they, you know, that, that GUI saves the day. But uh, it's pretty epic. And then there's, uh, there's a couple of other ones. Definitely check them out on the website. Um yeah, who is this 4chan guy? And uh, that's another good one. Um, if you have any good ones, send them over to us. Um, but it's just, it's no end of entertainment there. Um, people have now even made playlists. There's whole playlists of all just hacking, uh, uh, you know, hacking video fails. Um, one other thing to mention, a lot of people wrote in about our last episode, <clears throat> which was the episode on uh, teaching kids to code. And let me pull it up right now. There were some actually absolutely phenomenal suggestions out there. Well, while while you pull that up, I'll, I'll uh, give my contribution to this, which is I have nothing to say on th- computer science references, but I know this is a thing that other people talk about as well. Like I've seen YouTube videos from a biologist saying biology and video and movies is all wrong. Astrophysics is all wrong. Uh, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson does some about like uh, space travel and astrophysics and ruins movies, um, you know, by by pointing out how bad the plot is. And uh, the one one I saw recently was people complaining about uh, like how jazz, how you learn jazz music. So I think this is a universal thing where movies try to take artistic liberty because you want to make an interesting movie. And I, I personally, people are like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. They're so dumb. But I don't know. I think personally, it's just. They might know, or they know who, they could go figure it out. Like, I'm going to make a Visual Basic GUI to hack his IP address. Yeah, sure, that doesn't actually make sense. But to 99.9% of people, that sounds the equivalent of Avada Kedavra. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're just making Harry Potter spells. Like, you, I, yeah, it's just an incantation. They don't need it. They're picking real words, but it doesn't have to be meaningful. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I wonder, I wonder, uh, if now, because I feel like nowadays they're a bit better about that. So, so I wonder if they maybe they consult with somebody. It's just that when these shows were made, you know, that was so kind of unpopular and passe that they, they just made stuff up. Because nowadays it seems much more legit, like when I watch more recent shows. That's right. And I think even in, um, so I think famously in the Die Hard movie, the bad guy is, ooh, I'm not forgetting it, either German or Russian. And he's, that's what they insinuate. But he's just speaking, I think, just gibberish. And in the sort of German and Russian version, the, you know, whatever it is, the bad guy is some other country, but he's speaking the same words because they're just sort of like <laughs> gibberish words. I, I believe yeah. I'm recalling this correctly. But then someone was pointing out that uh, in like Game of Thrones, they actually like consulted. There's like a guy who's um, the Hollywood consultant for foreign languages or invented languages he's like a linguist oh and so wow. like in game of thrones this this dothraki language or whatever is actually modeled after realistic languages it in, and it's it's a whole language it's a whole thing and when they need a new word or sentence structure that they've not had before they like consult with him and he like helps them come up with like a cohesive system as if it really were a language wow that's cool yeah i uh i think i recently saw um the show scandal and uh um, yeah, my wife was watching it and I was catching a couple episodes and, um, yeah, they had some hacking sequence and it kind of made sense. I mean, it wasn't, 
I, I, I don't know much about hacking myself, but I mean, it, it definitely seemed a little like out of place. Like, but but you know, they had a bash command and they're doing you know I don't know, ls and they're going to a directory and looking at a file. I was like, it was it was much better than the one than the ones we posted, but also much less funny. Um, but yeah, as far as teaching kids to code, um, Anthony wrote in. He had a ton of really amazing resources. Um, <clears throat> one of them, which I actually have for my kid, but I forgot, is Kano. I don't know. Do you have a Kano kit? No. Or have you heard of this? So it's 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 like this. Um, it looks like about a Raspberry Pi with a case, maybe a little bit bigger than that. Um, but it has like a little joystick built right onto the onto the motherboard, and it, the joystick kind of pops out of the case. And it's also got some buttons, and um, you could just. They have like uh, snakes and a couple of simple games, but you actually have to build the computer yourself. Um, you don't have to solder or anything crazy, but but uh, you know the, the, you have to plug the battery in. You have to actually plug the buttons in. Um, you have to kind of assemble the case and everything. Um, so that was one he mentioned. Um, also, Scratch that's pretty popular. It's like a little graphical programming language. Um, and then Betty wrote in, and um, Betty's actually a math professor. At, uh, actually, I won't say the university just in case. I don't really under know if people like mind us, you know, revealing their identity or not. But but anyways, with that in mind, I won't say where she teaches, but she's a math professor. And um, she recommended something called uh, bricklayer.org, which uh, looks really cool. Um, so she actually founded it. And uh, it looks like it has a bunch of different things for, um, you know, using Lego um, to teach kids math and things like that. So some really cool resources. I was actually really impressed that a math professor even even listens to the show. So kudos to you, uh, Betty, and uh, and also Anthony. Thanks for the thanks for the heads up. All right, man. Is it time for news links? I think so. I I completely lost. Do you want to do the first one? I for some reason I totally lost my. Uh, <laughs> okay, time. no problem. All right. So the first one I have is um, running across an article about using, which apparently is built into both Excel, but this one uh, and Google Sheets, but uh, using the Google online version of Google, of Excel, the, the spreadsheet application, is being able to run simple SQL-like queries in it. I find it very difficult sometimes that I want to do something, and there almost always is a way to do it, of manipulating or filtering or searching for data. Um, and so this points out that you can do some common uh, SQL operations within a column what? in the spreadsheet. Do you have to install something? No, built in? no, in built in. Um, it, wow. it does not let you do joins, um, but it does allow for filtering. And it's in like sort of, to me, like the group by clause, the, you know, min of something, group by, order by this is more in, not, I want to say intuitive is the right word, but it's more at hand to me because I've done that more recently. Uh, yep. And so I'll link this, but this is from Ben Collins. Uh, and so he, there's some videos linked in even as well. I did, to be fair, I did, honestly, I didn't watch the videos, but I just looked at the examples and, and sort of got the gist. Uh, and so you can sort of say equals query, the column you want, you know, select this other column, this other column, this other column, where, you know, the whole, the whole thing. So I thought it was pretty cool. I didn't, I had no idea. And then you know, apparently it's also, there's some stuff that works in Excel. So if you ever find yourself needing to use spreadsheets, I find is one of those weird things. There are many, many, many people who spend enormous amounts of time in spreadsheets um, yep. and really know what they're doing when it's like a Python program probably could have done this way easier, but it's just what they're comfortable with. But on the flip side, I find well, a lot I, of times- I think the, the, okay. the GUI for Excel is just, amazing like the user the user experience is so nice i'm really surprised that that uh no one that that more languages don't have something like excel where you can kind of just easily see everything and you know things like that yeah and i will say that for me people from a cs background though i think sometimes underutilize i guess you're sort of alluding to the same thing but people from a cs background tend to underutilize spreadsheets um because yeah, sometimes exactly. it really is fast just to dump a bunch of data into a csv Open it up in Excel, Google Sheets, uh, the Open Office. I'm not sure what it's called there. No, number? No, no, no. Numbers is the um, Mac OS version. Um, yeah, there's LibreOffice, which is Libre a fork Office. of Open Office. That's the only okay. one I know. Yeah. So, but they have a spreadsheet equivalent, but I don't know what the name of it is in that suite. Do you know? Okay. 
And oh, so, uh, I think it's I think it's just called sheets. I could look it up. Okay, doesn't matter. Uh, and any of those, anyways, dumping a CSV, opening them up in there, and being able to do something really quick, um, depending on your data processing skills in Python, may or may not be faster. Um, with stuff like uh, Jupyter Notebooks and Pandas, that story is becoming slightly less awesome if you know how to use those tools. They can it's often be you know, almost as effective. Okay, spreadsheet. But yeah, anyways, if, you've, if you do know how to use this or are stuck with some data in that format, check it out. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Yeah, actually, the the um, there's R Studio, and um, that's the only thing. I, I mean, I guess MATLAB, right? I think MATLAB has a little spreadsheet type thing, but I guess I'll um, that's that's kind of like a sledgehammer, right? There really isn't a good, you know, if you want um, Excel that Excel style where you just have all of your matrices are just completely visualized like that, like in those sheets. Um, there's really, there's really nothing out there. I'm actually shocked. Well, actually, isn't there, uh, there are some products I've just never used them. There's Tableau and, oh, okay. um, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's, there's another one. I can't remember the name of it, but I think people have done this. It's just, none of them have, have, have gotten any popularity. All right. That's super cool. I'll have to try that out. My, my news is, um, about decentralization issues or sorry, deserialization issues. So, um, a lot of people might not have tried this, but you know, in Python you have pickle, and in Java you have um, oh, I can't remember. I think it's just called the Java serializer, um, and you have similar things in Ruby and things like that. And it's pretty amazing. Like in Python, you can actually um, you know you can pickle anything. So any almost any object. Uh, you know, if you try to pickle, let's say a file pointer or something like that, you'll get a you'll get an error. But you could pickle almost any object without having to write any serialization code. Like you don't have to, um, you know, do a like, like concatenate a bunch of fields into a string and then figure out how to pull them back apart. Um, it just does the deserialization for you. The serialization does everything for you and it writes it to some binary file. Um, so it seems kind of like magic. It seems really cool. Um, the thing about it is it's, it's so open-ended that, um, well, for one, it's not very efficient. So a lot of people don't really use it other than kind of, you know, prototyping and, and things like that. Um, also, if the language upgrades. So if you go to, from Python 2 to Python 3, that could cause some issues. Um, but on top of that, there's some real security vulnerabilities. Um, and so I, I think that's, again, comes back to the whole, like, fact that you could, you could pickle almost anything. So <clears throat> there's actually a way where... Um, and you'll have to read the article to get the details, but I think at a high level, what's going on is, you know, you unpickle something, and it unpickles into, uh, or, or basically, someone has created. So, so you pickle a file, and then you unpickle it later to get back your object, right? But let's say someone has access to that file, and they can manipulate it or replace it with another file. Then you unpickle it, and you know, thinking that it's it's the original file, and then just start using that class. But it turns out that person has kind of poisoned it. So, for example, um, just a really naive example. Let's say you could just pickle lambda functions. So you could pickle a whole function with all the operations. And so you know you have various. You have dot uh, x equals three. So you have class my class dot x equals three. You pickle my class, and so that file now says, okay, my class had an object x, and it was an integer three. Now someone comes along and replaces that file with one that says, oh yeah, my class had a variable called X and it was actually a function that you know wipes your hard drive. Oh. And then later on you depickle that, unpickle that, and then call you know, my class.x and, um, and, and, you, and you lose your hard drive, right? So, so, I mean, I don't think it's that simple, but, but at a high level, that's kind of what's going on is someone can actually inject um, really dangerous code and uh, when you when you unpickle, you get you get hit by that. Um, but it's, it's a cool article. They actually they they link to some other articles, so it, it's it's kind of it's a bit of a rabbit hole. But you can follow the rabbit hole down to some really good presentations where people talk about it in detail, and uh, they show you they have they walk you through examples of how exactly this can happen. And uh, yeah, I just found this stuff fascinating. It's it's a it's an attack vector that I didn't really realize was the thing until just now. Yeah, serialization and deserialization are tricky and important to get right especially if other people are providing you data yeah exactly yeah i mean anytime you know someone else is 
is is contributing data, you have to really expect you know just about anything. You know, I, I have no idea why you would use pickle for data that's coming from other people. I actually maybe it's because you're unpickling crash logs, <laughs> in which case that might not be the right tool for that job. <laughs> so on a similar related topic. I ran across, I actually think this, I got this on the programming uh, subreddit, the stack sort a la XKCD. So there was an XKCD, oh, I should have brought it up so I could link that as well. Um, there was an XKCD article where they described uh, an ineffective sort. And one of the ineffective sorts, is it here? Uh, no, there was one where they basically alluded to, let's see if I can find it, that they alluded to uh, searching for a sorting algorithm. Oh, here it is. Perfect. Linked. I should have just gone to the GitHub page. No, it is there. So basically, uh, like crappy, the XKCD was showing crappy ways to uh, do various sorts. So things like, um, you know, pick a random number uh, and then at some point, like, run various commands like rm-rf star you know, um, do just like crazy <laughs> things. Uh, it was just sort of a joke, right? Like XKCD, XKCD stuff. So this person tried to say, oh, I, I know of a way to do an ineffective sort. We'll search Stack Overflow for how to sort a list in JavaScript. And we'll okay. run the example code. Like people put example code. So we'll find top voted answers where there's code. And then we'll try to run it and see if it sorts the list. And so <laughs> right. if you go to the website, uh, which is sort of uh, super sketch, and it even like says, I'm going to pull some scripts from Stack Overflow and eval them. So like, hey, this is probably a really bad idea. You probably don't want to do this. Um, <laughs> but if you do, it goes and pulls it and then uh, you know tries to see if it'll sort the list or not. So most of them turn out not to be runnable, but occasionally you'll... Uh, run across one that, that will work. And so you just keep running them until you find that it's sorted. And so, of course, you could check if it's sorted. Um, and then, you know, it's it's a little more clever, though, because the first immediately obvious thing is to just start upvoting an answer that does something very malicious, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. uploading all of your browser history or, you know, running a, a you wouldn't mine Bitcoin, but running a cryptocurrency miner uh, in JavaScript. Um, and so you could do something really crazy malicious. Uh, so what he did was limit it to posts that came out before he sort of pushed this up so that people wouldn't know oh, that he nice. was he was going to do that. Yeah. So that it was at sense. least somewhat somewhat thoughtful. So anyway, so I, I thought that cool. was kind of like um, a, a good joke. Oh, that's what it was. I, my brain is not working this episode. I apologize in advance. So it was the <laughs> alt text of the XKCD. So if you don't this is something I didn't know about for a long time. I guess I'm not enough of an enthusiast. So there's a like XKCD explains website, I think is what it's called, where they explain some of the jokes because sometimes it's not obvious even like to me. But then a lot of times there's stuff when you hover over the image and it gives you the like explanation of what the image is supposed to be. There's this alt text. And a lot of times there's this funny alt text. So the alt text yeah. of the ineffective sort page on XKCD is stack sort connects to Stack Overflow, searches for sort a list, downloads and runs the code snippets until it finds one that sorts the list. That's what the alt text says. And this person implemented that. <laughs> nice. Sorry, I completely botched the, the beginning of that story. Uh, but if you didn't yeah, know about this... amazing. You should absolutely try that. Uh, we're don't. Like, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> sounds immediately like a terrible, uh, terrible it, thing it, to uh, do. So. Yeah, it mines a Bitcoin, sends it to Patrick, and then sorts the list takes a long time. <laughs> I did notice, uh, while, while we've mentioned Bitcoin now a couple of times, that the number of times I overhear cryptocurrency being mentioned randomly at work while walking by has dropped uh, very strongly correlated with the drop in price. Yeah, I mean, nobody's really talking about it anymore. It's, it's pretty wild. Actually, um, they started cracking down on the browser-based miners. I saw that, so, yeah. Yeah, so there was an issue where... Um, there were some websites that were um, just mining cryptocurrency. So you would go to the website and while you're on the website doing whatever you're doing on there, um, it's mining cryptocurrency. Um, so one of the examples is actually uh, BitChute, which we talked about in the past. 
which was uh, a way to you know watch videos kind of like YouTube. Um, they uh, yeah they were running a cryptocurrency miner and they actually just they posted in their blog that they just turned it off because of pressure. I guess their ISP is going to shut them down or something. But uh, up until up until now they've been they've been just mining Bitcoin on your computer, which is pretty wild. Um, yeah, so I don't know. So the reason why I said not Bitcoin is because I think Bitcoin from a CPU perspective is really bad now. But there are other coins which are still like designed purposely to work pretty well in a CPU still. Um, and so I'm not sure the exact details. But I'm actually that falls into uh, this is off topic, I guess. But it falls into a little bit of a murky thing because at some level, it's like if I go to YouTube and I'm watching a video for free, you can send advertisements. Or if you disclosed it properly, like not the whole time watching a video, but maybe for like the first 30 seconds and I'm watching a video, it's computing some hash, doing some work, whatever. Um, and that's like the exchange for me being able to watch the video to like help offset the costs. Like at some level, it seems like it could be a reasonable business model. The issue is just doing it without people's consent seems a little yeah, like slimy, sense. but I'm not clear yeah, why it became sense. such a major issue. I think if they had popped up a box saying, you know, you have to agree to mine Bitcoin to watch this video, I think it would be a totally different story. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. People installing malware that does it on your computer, like obviously like sucks, right? That's They're doing something oh, yeah, completely that's, without that's your permission. Good. And there were some malicious, I believe, Chrome add-ons and other add-ons to browsers where people were doing it as well, you know, slipping them into, well, that was an article yesterday or two days ago where there was a Node.js package that uh, checked to see if you have a wallet on the computer and if it had a certain number of bitcoins, it would uh, get your private key and send it to a command and control uh, server. And this like node package was imported by lots of major uh, projects. Um, oh, jeez! So, I mean, that obviously like horrible, right? And or putting yeah, a, uh, putting some sort of uh, obfuscated crypto miner in a package that you manage as an open source thing without telling anybody like i think those things are all pretty bad but yeah in general i'm not it seems kind of like a decent trade you could make like i'll go to your website in exchange for donating some of my compute power yeah i mean it seems fine to me i mean as long as yeah as, as you said as long as the consent is handled correctly i mean i think it's fine all right my <clears throat> my show topic is a retrospective on GraphQL. So we, you know, we haven't actually talked a lot about GraphQL. Um, I think GraphQL would definitely be um, a great show, and we should definitely. I'll, I'll add that to my list of, of things that I think about it. But um, just to kind of explain briefly, GraphQL, um, it's a replacement for REST. So you, know, you typically have a REST API, and you'll have. Um, uh, for example, you have a bunch of endpoints. So if I go to my website slash API slash me, it maybe returns some JSON with my information. If I go to slash API slash user, you know, question mark, you know, Patrick, then it, it gets his information if I have, you know, access to it or whatever. And so you could you could build endpoints like this. Um, but things, things kind of, especially for graph-based information, it kind of gets out of control. And it turns out a lot of things are are can be modeled in as sort of a graph. So imagine you have uh, email. So you have your your inbox folders, and each of those folders have emails. Each of those emails have attachments. You can kind of see there's this sort of tree structure developing, right? And so you end up writing these really complicated query handlers um, for being able to return data, and typically you end up needing to access different slices of data at different times. And rather than write, you know, 10,000 query handlers, you end up writing one that returns more data than you actually need just so that it can service, you know, three or four different requests or different types of requests. Um, and it just gets very messy. And so GraphQL is, uh, is basically a replacement for REST where um, you basically say GraphQL, you know, you own you know, this part of my website. So it's like, you know, slash API slash GraphQL, like everything in there is owned by GraphQL. And then what they will do is, is it's, it's just a, they will basically handle a lot of that for you. And so you can execute different queries 
and you can ask for you know certain pieces of information and you'll only get back that information um, it's really nice um, I highly recommend it especially you know once if you're building a website that needs to kind of fetch data in that format like if you're building an email server that's a that's a great example um, it's definitely a good thing to learn if you're doing anything web and um, this company talked about um, their evolution from a REST API to uh, GraphQL, what that was like. And they also have a list of lessons learned. Um, so I uh, definitely give it a read. It's pretty interesting. They've been using GraphQL for um, for two years. So they have a lot of different experiences. Um, they have things that they like, things they didn't like, certain you know packages that they were using, things like that. And so, yeah, if you're doing any web stuff, definitely check it out. All right. I think it's time for Patrick's book of the show. Um, yeah, so we're going to do something a little bit different. We didn't, uh, um, there's not too much time between last show and this show. So um, I have to admit, I haven't been doing much reading. Patrick hasn't been playing enough video games. So Patrick's going to handle the book <laughs> of the show, and I'll do the tool of the show. Uh, yeah, so with the Thanksgiving holiday, I just didn't end up uh, commuting as much. And so as I've attested before, I call it reading, but I actually mostly listen to the books. Uh, and so I uh, instead was using a different book over the Thanksgiving break. And I decided, hey, this would be good to talk about on Programming Throwdown because it's very programming related. And that is a cookbook. Uh, that was sarcasm. It has nothing to do with programming. <laughs> uh, this book is The Food Lab by Kenji. I don't actually know how you say his last name. I guess it's Lopez Alt. But um, I know him from know him i read about him when he he writes for a website called serious eats and although there have been more nerdy food websites that have been around in the past this one is like a good balance of uh sort of like nerdy tech approach to doing things without it being a gimmick and so he just takes like a more what i would say like an engineer style approach to how to cook where you'll see things like in traditional french uh, if you ever watched a lot of uh, engineers talk about Good Eats, which was Alton Brown's Food Network TV show, where they yep. kind of play the science of cooking. And it's sort of like that. Like, oh, in traditional French tradition, traditional French tradition. Oh, man, I'm really out of it. Uh, you're not supposed to <laughs> wash mushrooms under uh, running water because they would absorb too much of the water. And so you're supposed to use this dry brush and you really scrub at them to get the dirt out because mushrooms are really dirty. Um, but then like, is that true? Like that's easy to test. Just dump a bunch of mushrooms in a bucket of water for a while and then put them on a scale and see if they got heavier. (laughs) And if they didn't get much heavier, then they're not absorbing water. Um, but those things are, I don't, how would you say that? Those things are not even like acceptable to question because that's how people have done it for hundreds of years. If you're adhering to high, high cuisine. Yeah. Like they're, what do you mean? Like you do it because you do it. And there's just no questioning of it. Um, so uh, one of Kenji's big ones, like he uses like a, you know, uh, like what about reverse sear? So if you're going to try to crisp the outside of a piece of meat, tradition says you always sear it first and then braise it or whatever. Um, so like I'm going to cook the outside okay. really hot and then put it in a pot in the oven and cook it really low. And is that better or worse than what they call the reverse sear, which is like cooking it low and slow and then searing it at the end? Um and so, like, it, that's easy. Just try it both ways and then, and then you know, make an objective yeah. call or whatever. Like, but people just, you know, kind of don't. And so they do this and they actually do, do measurements and everything. Yeah, so this food lab is sort of his approach where he tries to say, like, hey, if you want scrambled eggs this way, do it this way. If you want it that way, do it that way. Like, the trick isn't this or that. It's just like, oh, add a little bit of water and your eggs are fluffy. Why? Well, because the water turns to steam. And when the steam is escaping... It's at about the same temperature that the proteins in the eggs set. And so it makes your eggs fluffy um, because it oh. sort of happens at the same, around the same temperature. So if you want fluffy eggs, add a little bit of water to your eggs when you scramble them. Um, you wow. know, just these like really sort of common sense. They're not really exactly food hacks, but just like, I, I don't know, I sort of relate to it. I feel like this is a, the kind of cookbook I want to read rather than this very fancy highfalutin thing where it tries to you know, impress you with the, you know, you need the... I don't even I don't even know how to pretend to be that you need, you know, one centimeter long Julian carrots. And, you know, it's like, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. great. Like, no. <laughs> so anyways. Yeah, no, I, I'd much rather have a practical book that says, like, you know, here are the things you already cook. Here's how to do them better. Yeah. So 
and there's there's recipes for stuff I haven't cooked and good ideas. And I just feel like, oh, if I go do this, I'm more likely to know if it didn't work, that it was something I did rather than this is a bad recipe. So uh, anyways, yeah, yeah so that's The cool. Food Lab by Kenji Lopez-Alt. And uh, we'll have a link in the, the show notes. Uh, and similarly to the stack sort we were talking about earlier, I do find myself and, and my family, the internet is sort of weird for recipes because you just go to Google and you say like, you know, French toast. <laughs> and then you can find just whatever website appears at the top, you click it. And if it looks reasonable, you cook that recipe. Uh, and then in yeah, a week, you're like, I like that. I didn't I cook everything. So I go that? That's basically how I cook everything. Oh, okay. But then if you like it or don't like it, what do you do again the next time? Because if you search it again, it's not guaranteed the same site will come up. Oh, yeah. I mean, if if, it, if I cook it and I like it, I bookmark it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so I, I still like cookbooks. I have a series. I might recommend, I might have a couple shows where I recommend them because I kind of enjoy cooking as a hobby, I guess. I'm not particularly great at it uh, and I don't do it sort of all no, the I time. I think it's a but great hobby. I like it as a hobby. Yeah, it's fun. It's something you have to do anyways, so you might as well make a hobby out of it. Sure. Yeah. So that's my book of the Very show. Very cool. All right. My tool of the show. <clears throat> my tool of the show is, uh, is actually software RAID controller or just using RAID in general. So uh, quick story um, about two or no, I guess it was about a week ago. Um, I, you know, turned on my my uh, computer that I have sitting behind the TV in the living room. And um, it told me that one of my hard drives failed. And sure enough, it just completely failed. Like no warning. Uh, Actually, my my wife told me about a a few weeks ago that it was was hearing this kind of clicking sound coming from the computer. So there was a little bit of a warning, but um, uh, but then it went away. And then all of a sudden, just, yeah, the hard drive just spontaneously died. Uh, Fortunately, I had a RAID 1 backup. And so what that means is I actually had two two terabyte hard drives that were RAID 1. They were mirrored. So, you know, every time I would write a byte to one, it would write to the other one. And and it's it's done automatically. So basically, the way this happens, I don't know how this works on Windows or or OS 10 or anything like that. But on Linux, um, you actually... Um, you know, all of your hardware is in the slash dev directory. So anything in slash dev is not a is is of your hard drive or of your I guess file system is not a is not a file. It's an actual pointer to a, you know some type of device or some type of engine like dev random or something, right? So um, you know you, your hard drives might look something like dev slash SDA, dev slash SDB for your second hard drive, SDC, so on and so forth, right? Um, what what the RAID controller does is it makes a new device. I think mine's called dev slash MD zero, and when I you know mount that device, it you know looks and feels just like a hard drive. So I can you know mount it to a folder. I can open it up. I can add files to it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but but everything I do actually gets written um, to this RAID controller, which then writes it to both of the hard drives. And so you can, you know, check the file system for errors and stuff like that, just like a normal um, file system. <clears throat> and under the hood, they're, they're doing everything basically twice. Right. So. Um, so, yeah, I had RAID. I've had RAID one set up for years and years. And uh, yeah, I chose last week for one of the hard drives to just completely bite the dust. And, and I have um, almost all my family photos on that RAID array. So, you know, if I didn't have a RAID array, they would have just been gone. I mean, I probably have some on Google or something, but um, definitely the original copies, you know, the original uh, size would have been just gone. So I highly, highly recommend doing this. Um, if you don't have a Linux machine, um, and you don't want to go the trouble of setting this up, um, you can install, you can buy one of these NAS devices. So there's a Symbology is one, a Drobo is another one. Um, and what they'll do is they basically run the RAID controller and everything for you. So you buy this, this box, it's running Linux. Um, you can just put as many hard drives as you want in it, and then you can access it from other computers in your house. So it just stays on all day. And, um, you know, from your desktop, you can go to some network drive and set that up. Um, in my case, I already have a computer that's running all day, um, just sitting behind the TV. So um, I set up my own. Um, but either way, yeah, I highly recommend setting up a RAID array. 
um, yeah, there's raid one, which is total mirroring. So, you know, if it, you basically end up with half, half the capacity. Uh, if you have more than two hard drives, you can um, do some of the other things like there's raid five, raid six, um, so on and so forth. Um, basically, I think the idea is um, that, you know, as long as you have N hard drives, you can lose one of them. Like the, the RAID 5 is set up so that you can lose one. And as long as you don't lose another one while, you know, the, the remaining hard drives are, you know, are recovering from the loss, as long as you don't lose another one in that time, you're okay. Which is, you know, it's highly unlikely you're going to lose two in a row. Um, so yeah, definitely set up RAID. Uh, it really saved me. Uh, I went to Amazon. I bought a new two terabyte hard drive. Um, when it arrived, I plugged it in where the old one was. I told my RAID controller, hey, you know, add this new device. Um, it actually it told me it was going to take 220 minutes to, 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 you know, replicate. But even during that time, I could add files to the RAID array. Like it's smart enough to, to, to just work, like be completely uh, available while it's replicating and all of that. So it's, it's pretty magical, actually, how it works. And, um, you know, it totally saved me. So that's my tool of the show. Nice. Also, it seems yeah, brave do you, that do you, have you didn't just like that? wait the 220 minutes. <laughs> that's only like three hours, right? <laughs> yeah, like yeah well, you know, hours, I was kind of curious. Oh, okay. So yeah, I mean, I just, I created a, a dummy file just to see what happened. And uh, yeah, it was pretty dangerous, but, you know, I live on the edge, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I have a... Something sort of similar, although I will admit my uh, NAS, the network attack storage I have, is RAID arrayed inside. But I sort of use backup between my desktop and it as the backup strategy, I guess. So I don't have like my, yeah, that makes my individual computers aren't rated. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's true. My my desktop isn't rated. Uh, the only thing I have rated is the is the family photos. Okay. And uh, yeah, I also have that backed up. So, and I assumed my NAS was hardware raid, but it could be software raid. You know, yeah, I don't think hardware raid is a thing anymore. Oh, really? Because yeah, I was thinking about this. Like, uh, I remember in like early two thousands when you could get a hardware raid motherboard. Yeah. But nowadays, you know, the raid uses such a trivial amount of CPU because of Moore's law and all that. I don't think you can even get a hardware raid. I mean, or if you can, it's like for some super industrial setting. I will defer to you. Anyways. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, well. That's my tool of the show. We uh, we typically uh, do a, a pitch for Audible. You like to support the show. Uh, we didn't recommend a book on Audible this week, but we have a history on the website of many books which are available on Audible. And uh, if you've never tried Audible before, uh, I think both Jason and I are scrap subscribers. And so yep. um, we both enjoy it and pay happily for our own subscriptions. Um, but if you haven't and you would like to become an Audible member and get a free book in the process, um, you can go to audibletrial.com slash programmingthrowdown uh, and uh, check out one of the many, many books that they have. And like I said, look in our show notes for many recommendations we've made uh, throughout time. Uh, short books, long books, funny books, happy books, sad books. I think they got something of everything there. Uh, it really is actually yep. kind of overwhelming Um and they have sales too. Like while you're a member, you're able to get other books on a discount price. So it's a pretty good arrangement. I, I actually like it. Yeah, same here. I'm a big fan. Um, if you don't want to support us on Audible, you can support us on Patreon. Or even if you do, you can support us on both. <laughs> um, so Patreon is, is pretty cool. It, uh, um, you can give up to a dollar. Actually, this is the last month before the Christmas show. Um, last Christmas, that was pretty ambitious. Um, you know, we really set out to give a gift to everybody. We were able to give a gift to everyone in the U.S. and Canada. <laughs> but um, we had issues shipping international, like shipping overseas. And so I'm going to think really hard this month about what we can do. Um, I learned a lot. We learned a lot from, from last year. Um, we have a ton of fans, which is amazing. But it also means that uh, you know, logistically, there there are things that we're not experts in that, that we either need to get some help with. Um, we're definitely going to give out the T-shirts and all of that. We do that every year. Um, and, you know, that's that's pretty easy. We, they they drop ship for us. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to, you know, figure it out. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, anything we buy online, um, you know, we'll, they'll ship relatively cheaply. So 
Um, I don't know if we can give something to everybody this year, but uh, I'm going to figure that out. Uh, yeah. Either way, Stay this, tuned is, till next time. this is the last month. Yeah, this is the last month to sign up uh, to be in the raffle for the T-shirts and uh, whatever mystery prize we figure out. <laughs> um, so, so go ahead. And you can join. You can you know, get a crack at the mystery prizes and then you can leave. It's fine. You won't hurt our feelings. But uh, also, while you're a Patreon subscriber, you get access to the Patreon RSS feed, which is the super fast download. Downloads way faster than you can listen to it. Um, very reliable and all of that. And uh, you help support the show, which allows us to you know, ultimately reach more people. Well, I think it's time for the topic of the show. Customer bug handling. That rolls so right this off is something the that, Yeah. This is something that uh, is actually really hard to get right. So you think about this. You know, you have all the code on your machine. Um, you might even be cross-compiling. So you might even be running Linux but building something for Windows or something like that. I mean, it could be, that could be really extreme, right? But you have all of that information. Um, you might be able to build in debug mode. Um, you end up with this enormous binary, right? I mean, you have all of your own system libraries, all of that. Um, and so that makes debugging relatively easy. Um, you can step through the debugger. You can do all sorts of stuff like that. The issue is what happens when you know, you send your program to someone else or you deploy your website or you push a mobile app and then all of a sudden you start getting reports that, hey, it locked up, it crashed, things like that. Like, what do you do then? And it turns out that question is um, not trivial to answer. Actually, it's, it's actually kind of surprising that, you know, there hasn't been just something that just has solved this for, for, for everybody. Uh, it seems like... Uh, like such a fundamental problem, but I guess it's just so fragmented the ecosystem that's hard to really do that. Yeah, I mean, I think not um, just the fragmentation. I think that we were talking about a little bit before when we were preparing for the show, but I think the scale of things matters a lot too. Um, and so I think in a you know video game where it runs on many, many, many. Well, hopefully it's a successful video game, and it runs on many, many <laughs> people's uh, computers where the individual users. I don't want to say like low sophistication but they're not really supposed to be helping you debug your app, right? Like it just is supposed to right. work. Uh, and you will almost guaranteed going to get crashes just because of the statistical, like the number of hours your game is running and aggregate across everything is like somebody's going to drop their, you know, tablet or lose power on their PC while they're playing your game. Um, that versus you know, this application I write is for a very important, you know, customer who has 10 people who use it. And it's part of a multi-million dollar business. And they're very sophisticated. They're very invested in helping me fix my app. Uh, and if something goes wrong, I'm probably coming out to their site and, you know, working with them um, to get it. You know, all those, the spread there is just incredibly wide. Yep. Yep. So. Yeah. So, I mean... It's true. If you go to, I mean, if you if you have uh, enterprise customers and you can actually go on site, then uh, um, there's a whole lot you can do there, right? But let's talk about the case in the beginning where you know you are, let's say, a video game developer, and you know, you're sending your game out to people. They're paying, let's say, ten dollars for it, um, and uh, you're not really going to be able to fly over to their house. <laughs> so um, one thing to do is. Turn on debugging symbols. Um, you know, it's one of these things. I mean, you have to pass the, you know, dash G flag in, in, uh, um, in GCC and, and things like that. And so you might be tempted to build things in release mode. But, I mean, honestly, I mean, disk space is cheap. Um, you know, network bandwidth is, 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 is not that cheap. But you can, you know, most of the time these debug symbols compress quite nicely. And you... One thing, and this is going to be an overall theme for this show, is you don't want to put yourself in a position where you can't debug the problem. Like you really don't, you, you absolutely don't want to, um, you know, push out a release binary. You get a bunch of crash reports that you can't really do anything with um, and then decide, okay, now I'm going to, you know, take out some of these optimizations, right? I mean, you can build with debug symbols and, and the opt mode and it's not, it's not going to be that much slower. I, I'll caveat. Um, I'll, oh, oh, go ahead. Oops, sorry. Um, I'll caveat that a little by saying that uh, in the start here, we're going to talk about a bunch of things as sort of a survey of topics. But be 
we talked about this when we talked about uh, don't roll your own encryption, uh, that some of these things can have implications that are kind of big. So turning on debug symbols is very helpful when you're debugging, but you have to weigh the cost of people understanding more about your code. So if you're in something where you're distributing code that you don't want people to know what it does, or it has secret sauce in it, um, or a really great filter or whatever, which is not most people, admittedly, um, but there are certain cases where you're gonna be want to be very careful about, I give this to someone, but I wanna limit their ability to understand exactly how it works. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. I haven't hadn't really thought about that, but I guess what you could do in that case is you could have, you know, basically you could divide your code up into the secure code and the unsecure code. And, um, you know, the secure code could be built without debug symbols and then as a static library and then just linked in um, to, to the unsecure code. Um, but yeah, I mean, generally, you know, unless, yeah, if it's the secret sauce, you can, there's ways around that. But generally, you just want be careful to, uh, yeah. And I think most of the time, the errors are typically, you know, in the interface, um, you know, in the in the high level part of the code, which is not, it doesn't generally have a lot of IP. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other part is, you know, you have logs. Um, if you can, you want to leave those logs running. Uh, ideally, you want, if you're using like G log or easy logging uh, in the case of C++, or using like Bunyan, if you're using JavaScript, uh, any of these log tools, they all have log levels, even like the log4j if you're using Java. And you, know, you typically want to allow people to, to turn on verbose logging. So you, know, you can have some kind of configuration file and when you know, they set uh, verbose to one, you know, they get all the verbose log and, um, and then they can you know, email that to you. Um, you could have a button where when there's a crash, you know, you, it automatically emails the logs, things like that. But basically you want to have access to that information that you have when you're debugging. Uh, that's another way to think about it is, is uh, if you don't have something when you're debugging, um, can you still triage the problem? If the answer is no, then you have to kind of plan for that, right? You have to assume that whatever crashes you're seeing, you're going to see um, you know, similar crashes from coming from other people. So for example, when we were um, rolling out the first versions of the Eternal Terminal, we were getting tons of really bizarre crashes because it was... Um, it was running on Windows for Linux. It was running on BSD. It was, you know, there's there's people. At, um, so we had deployed it at the place where I work, and there was pretty quickly there was hundreds of people using it, and we just encountered tons of OS specific bugs um, that that uh, were were like extremely difficult for us to triage because we didn't have any logs. Um, we we didn't have really any any of the stack trace you know, any of the debug symbols turned on, and um, since then you know we've kind of added all this capability. It's made a big difference. I think with both. Um, oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. With both uh, rolling logs and log levels, there's considerations. So on rolling logs, one of the things is you want to limit how much space you take up, um, but you need yep. enough logs so that if something starts you know dumping tons of things going wrong, you don't miss the thing that started it all, and instead only see the, the symptoms, which is a problem I run into. Other things there you can be clever about is trying to be careful about how many of a given kind of error you're seeing. So often you start spitting off the same kind of error over and over again, and oftentimes it's the first one that's the most interesting. And so making sure you always capture like the first of a given kind of error, like sort of slightly smarter ways. And with log levels, being careful that logging has some cost, Spending time driving down that cost is important and then making sure that you're not logging at such a high rate or in a part of code that uh, is running at a high frequency that you end up costing a lot of computation time to do the actual logging. Yep. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Yeah, this is something that, you know, definitely before you ship a binary, you want to run it in verbose mode and just make sure that it isn't just completely blowing up. Um, the logs because that can happen very easily if you put a log inside some really tight for loop um, just one log line can cause you know just megabytes and megabytes of log to just start building up almost as fast as you can you can see it um, another thing is uh, you know definitely you know handle crashes and things like that pretty gracefully um, there's a bunch of libraries to help with this 
but basically you want to um, you know catch the crash and typically what will happen is you'll you'll try to get the stack trace so in the case of Linux there's actually a system call called backtrace that will give you the function pointers of um, you know the, the whole stack up until where you are right now and so you'll want to you know run backtrace and then you know dump that to a disk to, to, to file or something or to a log or something like that um, in addition to, to crashes, I mean, crashes is the most common thing that, that you know, you'll want to handle, but also there are signals. So for example, if you divide by zero, um, well, depending on the programming language, but I, I think in C, you might get an exception, but I'm sorry, in C++, you might get an exception. But if you divide by zero in C, you're not going to get some type of exception. There isn't even a concept of that. You're, you're going to get what's called a signal. Um, and you can look up uh, the different signals. There's sig abort. There's uh, sig sev. Um, and and you, you, what you want to do is look up all these different signals and make sure you're handling them uh, gracefully. Um, like some of them, like sig interrupt, you, you don't really want to handle because that's only for when you're debugging. Or if, if someone hits control C on your program, maybe just leave it up to them. Um, but you know, definitely the big ones like sig abort. Um, you know, sig sev and maybe sig uh, um, sig term when the process uh, when something external tells your process to terminate. <clears throat> um, you want to handle those and uh, catch those, and again, write a log out really quick or, or or something like that. So then, on the other end, now you've you, you've dumped all these logs. You have some way of getting these logs to you know some server that you own. Maybe you use GraphQL for that or something else. Um, and now you have to process all of those logs, right? And you don't want to be, especially if you have, you know, let's say 20 or 30 bug reports, which you feel like are the same bug. You want to be very efficient at sort of going through those logs and picking out the most important pieces. Maybe you even want to write something that will pull the stack trace and dump it to a database. So you just have a database full of stack traces. And so this, I think we've talked about this many times, but but become an expert in grep. Grep will absolutely save you. Um, grep is basically a way for you to just, um, you know, search for specific words and files. If you know, your stack trace log line starts with stack trace colon, you could grep for stack trace colon, and you'll just see all of the stack traces and all of your logs. Um, it's getting more common now to actually write logs as JSON objects. So um, like Bunyan does JSON. A lot of people now are starting to use JSON. And so um, you could use JQ, which is um, stands for JSON query. And uh, it's, it's similar to grep in the sense that you can say, you know, just fetch this, um, uh, fetch this, this one object inside of this, this JSON object if it exists. Or you could say, you know, give me all of the keys that start with this. And so definitely become proficient with JQ. Um, the other part that's really important is, you know, when you get the, you know, again, the people who are running your code, they don't have your code oh, most of the time, right? So, so they're running your game or your app or your program, but, but they, they don't have the original source code, right? But when there's a crash, you want to know the, the line of the source code so that you can debug, right? So what you have instead, or you have these pointers, these function pointer, these function addresses, and the addresses map to lines of code, right? So, <clears throat> so every function address maps to you know the start of a function in some in some source file, right? And so you can use there's um, on Linux it's called addr to line on OS 10 it's called atos. I don't actually know what it is on Windows. I'm sure there's there's something on Windows. I like that. Okay, yeah, but but these tools, what they will do is, you know, when you run backtrace on Linux, as I said, you're going to get a list of these pointers, and you can dump them to a log, let's say in hexadecimal, right? Um, then on your side, when you get this stack trace, you're going to need to convert that into the lines of source code, and that's what these tools do. So these tools take in the binary, and they also, I think you run them from the directory that has your source code. Uh, or maybe it's from the directory that built the binary. You have to look up in the manual. But basically, you'll run it from a place where they know where your source code is. Um, they know where the binary is. That's another thing is when you ship the binary, you're going to want to basically know 
uh, get your source control tagged. So if I ship, let's say version one, I want to tag um, you know, my source control repository and say, this is version one. This is exactly what every source file looks like. And here's the version one you know, binary. Um, so then if you get a crash back, you can load that version one binary and download that. You can get the pointers from that, from that stack trace and using this, the, the correct you know, version of the source code and binary, you can actually recover the lines um, in the source where that person was when they crashed, right? So without this, you're gonna to be totally lost, right? I mean, someone's going to say, hey, my program crashed, and you'll have to kind of say, oh, what were you doing when it crashed? Like, I mean, it's, just, it's impossible, right? You don't wanna do that. So uh, with, with something like this, they'll say, oh, my program crashed. You say, okay, give me the stack trace. And you're going to get this list of, of hexadecimal numbers, and and um, you can pipe that list into address to line, and it will actually tell you the 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 you know specific um, lines that the person was on, and you can follow that all the way up to main. Like the the furthest one will always be the the int main that starts the program. So you know if you're running um, if this is like a Python program, then you don't really have to worry about that. But that also means um, you're sort of basically kind of distributing the source code um, in that case, right? I think I think you could use something like PyFreeze, like one of these compilers. Um, but I think even in that case, it distributes the source code. So yeah, I don't think there's any way around it in Python. Um, now, obviously, if you're giving people the source code and the binary, they could you could even run address to line on their computer and then just send you the location of the crash. Um, but for most of these languages, um, like even Java, you'll have to um, you'll have to unwind the stack, and um, I don't think you have to use any special program in Java, but um, but you'll have to handle that. Yeah. So I think we covered that's pretty much desktop in a nutshell. Um, the hardest part there, as I said, is the the crash handlers. There's a lot of if you just look up GitHub C++ crash handler, you'll find a, a bunch of really great libraries to help you out. And I think it's definitely something where if you're going to ship, you also want to practice it, if that makes sense. So introducing crashes yeah, and making sure that your logging is actually working as intended because nothing's worse than a very rare crash happening and the logging isn't configured properly and you don't have what you need. Yeah, actually, I can't remember. Oh, I think it's Android. And I don't know if it's it's in the modern Android, but there was definitely a version of Android or maybe I'm, I'm mixing things up here. But there was something I saw where... <laughs> Um, basically you could cause a crash. Like, like there was just like a expert menu and you could go into a developer menu, developer settings. And one of the developer settings was crash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I, I just, you know, out of morbid curiosity, I tapped it and yeah, it crashed. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, you definitely want something like that in the first version where, you know, hopefully you bury it where, way down in the menu, but, um, you know, someone who's helping you out can, go hit the crash button and you should be able to get a crash and you should be able to trace exactly the line uh, that crashed and, uh, and and what you know functions called into that function, so on and so forth. So now for the web, um, you know, if you're building a website, there's, there's two components, your client and your server, right? The server is pretty straightforward because on the server, you know, it's you own the code, you have the binary, you know, all in one place. Even if you're not developing on the server, you can always push the code to the server. And so that's you know, not really that, um, let's say, interesting. Um, you could even be running like a totally interpreted language like Python or Ruby or something. Um, it's much more interesting when you get crashes on the browser, right? Now, this isn't, you know, literally crashing the browser because um, that's that's always Chrome's fault. If you can crash the browser, um, you know, that's that's pretty much on them. But, but, you know, if your code, uh, you know, causes an exception, um, uh, you know, that, that's, that's uh, typically the thing you ought to watch out for. So, you know, for example, you have, you're, you're, you're getting the mean of a list of values, but the list is empty and you divide it by zero or something like that. Um, so in this case, you know, your browser uh, JavaScript will throw an exception and you have to handle that. And so typically on the website, the way this works is, you know, because the JavaScript is um, 
because the source code of the JavaScript is sent to the browser, you don't have to worry about address to line or anything like that. Um, one thing you do have to worry about is is the um, demangling. So if you do, for example, you run like uh, one of these scripts that compresses your JavaScript code, it might take out all the new lines. And then now, you know, big surprise, every crash happens on line one, uh-huh. <laughs> right? So, so typically JavaScript, you know, when you do one of these compression tools, it'll create what's called a source map, which the source map basically just says, you know, column 40,000 to 40,030 actually maps to line 3004, you know, and so on and so forth. And the source map is just this huge file that maps, you know, chunks of that enormous one line JavaScript file to the original, you know, file name and, and line. So it's, it's actually similar to address to line, um, you know, conceptually. And so there are tools which will, you know, take the, the JavaScript uh, stack trace of the one line file and, and convert it into the appropriate stack trace that's readable. Um, so you have to you have to deal with that, but basically it's it's a similar idea where when there's a crash, um, you know because it's a website, you don't have to worry about how to get the crash to the server because you already have like a client server, um, you know framework in place. You just you just use whatever you're using to send data between those two machines. So use AJAX or even WebSockets, whatever you want. Um, but then on the server, you know you'll have to do some work. Um, on mobile, it's very different. Um, so I've linked to a couple of libraries. For Android, it's ACRA. And for iOS, it's KS Crash. And yeah, basically, you know, these libraries will, it's, it's similar to, it's more similar to desktop than to web, right? So, so these libraries will send um, crash logs to some endpoint, you know, that you have to set up. Um, and sometimes they can even send it through some iOS or Android infrastructure and then they'll arrive in the you know developer, um, in the you know the developer store, the developer platform or front end. Um, you can collect these crash logs. Um, but you know I think in the case of Android and iOS, it's much more handled by the actual app stores. So I know I, I made an Android app a while back. Uh, it's been probably six years, but uh, at that time they had a, a set of you know crash reporting tools. So. I would just get a list of crashes and they would provide the stack traces. Um, so they would do a lot of that for you. Um, you know, so I think uh, definitely take a look at, you know, what the Play Store can do, what the um, you know, iOS store can do. Uh, but here's a couple of libraries that, that streamline that and make it even easier. I've not developed uh, much on mobile, but I feel in some ways mobile might be the easiest because even though there's lots and lots of mobile devices, it feels like there's far less than the number of configurations of computer hardware or web browser configurations. And so I feel like the number of your ability to potentially be able to replicate the issue might be much higher. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. There is, um, oh, let me see if I can find it. There's a really good tool which um, simulates different browsers. Um, I won't look it up now in the interest of time, but, but, if, but if you kind of Google around for... I think it's called a, like a browser simulator. Um, but basically, literally uh, on the left-hand side, it has a panel and you can choose like Chrome, Firefox. I, I'm sure it can't simulate everything because it's just trying to run your JavaScript kind of through this middleware layer. It's not literally executing different browser code. Um, but it'll try its best to, at least for CSS and things like that, catch a lot of those issues. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, Browser is, in a sense, the worst, although things are kind of homogenizing now, where um, I think I think Chrome, you know, Brave, Firefox, um, you know, it's it's most things now are kind of pretty cross platform. Cool. Cool. Yeah, definitely. Send us your worst debugging uh, nightmare where someone has a crash and there's absolutely no way to replicate. (laughs) We always love hearing stories like that. Um, I've definitely caused more than a few of those myself. So this is why it's what inspired this episode. <laughs> um, and uh, hopefully with these tips, you can kind of avoid doing it. Um, you could set, set people up where if they have a crash, they can send you some information and you'd be able to, to triage. One thing, definitely expect everything to crash. Like if you, if, whatever you write, 
you have to have some way to handle crashes, either as Patrick said, because of different um, client software. Um, sometimes there's people who are running, you know, Windows XP, and you'd be amazed. Like even the simplest programs don't work. Um, people just do things you don't expect. There's situation you don't expect. There's internet, um, um, like internet, like some people's internet connection are not as reliable. And, um, you know, it's very, very hard to plan for all of these things. So you definitely expect failure and uh, have the right way of like, ideally automatically just, just sending some information to you. Cool. That's pretty much all I have. All right. Till next time. All right. Uh, next time is the Christmas show. And uh, actually for January, we have a special guest. This might be our... Hopefully. I mean, I, nothing, hopefully. Hopefully. Nothing against... Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, actually, I won't spoil it. I won't spoil it. But... We have an amazing guest, um, yeah. Hopefully, and and uh, I'm really excited. Definitely, it's gonna be it's gonna be absolutely phenomenal. We're gonna start the year off uh, extremely special way. Um, but next month, we're going to have our Christmas uh, giveaway or holiday giveaway, and uh, you know, we'll hopefully give out some really cool T-shirts and some other prizes. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.